Hey listeners, you have found hope. This is the Bridge to Hope podcast, Finding Hope. I'm Coltra, and I'm here with Alyssa as usual. This is the third and final part of our series, Relationships, Boundaries, and Sex, Oh My. Kat, our sexual assault and stout campus advocate, is joining us again today to talk about safe sex and sexual health. This may be a sensitive topic to discuss. Please stop listening when you need to and practice self-care. Here's Kat. Oh, I'm so glad to be back with you both. This has been such a fun series to record. For those of you who haven't listened to the past episodes, go do that right now because they were so much fun, at least for me, to help record. That's been a very wonderful opportunity. But I think they're really important conversations, so it's a little bittersweet closing the series. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely been fun. Yeah, so today we're going to kind of dive into the sexual health side of things. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a pretty broad conversation to have. But again, really important. And it's one of those things that we just do not have adequate amount of coverage on in our right. lives. You know, like in society, we just don't talk about it. It's so taboo. And I think that's changing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that, hey, that's why we're here. We're, we're trying to help change that and challenge that stigma. So I guess we kind of just talked about it a little bit. But why are these conversations so important to have about sexuality, reproductive health, like why, why should we talk about them and go outside of our comfort zones? Yeah, for sure. That's a really good question. Anybody who knows me probably knows that I am like a big time sex nerd. Um, I'm all about comprehensive sex education and reproductive health care. I love learning about it. I love talking about it. It's probably my biggest passion And when I first got into all this sex stuff, at some point I reflected on, you know, where did that interest come from? Uh, No, I'm not just some pervert weirdo obsessed with obscenity. (laughs) I'm not just being rebellious for the fun of stirring the pot with my interests and something that's long considered taboo in the culture we exist in. But actually, for me, it stems from somewhere really personal. Um, And as Coltra said, I think it's really important for all of you to take care of yourselves Do what you need to, and if it's not something you're comfortable listening to, that's okay. You don't have to. You can absolutely fast forward or pause or do what you have to do, but I did want to give a little trigger warning about sexual assault. So I actually have never disclosed this publicly, but I am a survivor of childhood sexual assault, and in my youth, sex was a really terrifying and anxiety-inducing topic. And sometimes it still is for me, despite my passion for sex education and reproductive health. I think that experience made anything related to sex at all that much more confusing and scary for me. You know, nobody ever really talked to me about sex when I was a kid. And anything that had to do with sex in any way was censored or shut down immediately. At that point, I didn't even really understand what sex was. I just knew it wasn't acceptable to talk about it. And for me, it felt like that included what had happened to me. I don't remember ever feeling like what happened was my fault, but I always felt like I had to keep it to myself because other people, (sighs) telling other people would make them uncomfortable. And, you know, I was, how was I ever supposed to understand and process that situation when I'd never been given the opportunity to have the tools and the language to even know where to begin with that as a child. 
So I always, I was always very inquisitive about it though. Like I, <laughs> I couldn't understand why it was such a forbidden topic and why it was never properly talked about. My brain's never been like, oh yeah, I'll just accept an answer without an explanation. And an explanation I understand at that, by the way. Like, you have to make it make sense to me. Mm-hmm. I can understand and I don't know because sometimes we don't know things. And that just gives us more incentive to learn and explore the world. But I cannot and will not just accept just because. Like, because what? You know, that doesn't answer my why. Right. Um, so because nobody would talk to me about these things growing out uh, or growing up, I set out to find the answers for myself. And luckily, my young mind was always digging deeper, and I wouldn't typically take things at face value. Um, so I was always on the hunt for the most accurate information out there and tried really hard to find, um, you know, real factual stuff instead of just whatever somebody wrote on their blog, you know? Um, But I know that not everybody has that experience, unfortunately, and it's really easy to be exposed to misinformation or harmful content, some of which can be really, really damaging, especially in the age of the internet and having all the information in the world available at your fingertips. So, you know, that's something to be conscious of. Never learning anything about sex is really damaging, too. So that's my kind of big, long answer to why I think these conversations are vital and need to be started early in life. I wasn't getting sexual gratification from learning about sex. I was just excited to learn. I found it fascinating, and I still do, fascinating to fall in love with something that once really haunted me. And that has been so healing for me. Learning about sex from a scientific standpoint, learning that it doesn't have to be scary, That changed everything for me. Even people who have not experienced sexual assault firsthand, I think talking about sex can be pretty intimidating and uncomfortable at the very least, just because of the stigma around it. And I don't want it to have to be that way. It shouldn't have to be that way. A lot of harm and trauma could be avoided if we just had honest conversations about sex. Thank you for sharing that with us, Kat. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point as far as how taboo sex is, and I think that we can kind of relate that to this huge surge of true crime fandom that we've mm-hmm. seen, where, you know, death death and murder are very macabre, dark subjects. Yeah. But now they're also pop culture. You know, this is like a right. mainstream yep. pop culture right now, where, you know, it's, it is still dark and scary, but mm-hmm. the benefit from learning from it is way way better than acting like it doesn't exist or ignoring it and making it darker and scarier. Yeah. That actually reminds me of a documentary I watched in a a death and bereavement class I took in college that um, I can't remember the name of the documentary, but there was a line in it where somebody had said sex and death are so much alike because they happen every day to pretty much everybody. Right. But nobody wants to talk about it. Right. And Mm -hmm. and they're both more or less a fact of life. Yeah. So now that we've set the groundwork for why this conversation is really important and that we're not trying to cross boundaries or make you uncomfortable, we're just trying to get to a deeper truth and to really explore the facts. Because like Kat said, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of personal experiences and speculation that may 
may be true for somebody, but are not true for us all. So we really want to dig into what the facts are. And so we're going to start with going through birth control options. And when we're talking about birth control options and anything sexual health related, um, we do want you as listeners to keep in mind that Kat, Alyssa, and myself are not medical professionals. We have no medical background in any of these things. We're just women. We have bodies that do things, and we need to address those things so that we can stay healthy and keep ourselves safe. You know, a reminder that this is not meant to be taken as medical advice. This is just kind of our opinions and experiences, um, but we're going to try and keep it to the facts as much as we can. So, Alyssa, what is the best option for preventing pregnancy? Well, first I want to say that I got all of my information from PlannedParenthood.org. So the best birth control for preventing pregnancy would be, I have a huge list, so just follow along. So birth control implant and an IUD, both are 99% effective, according to PlannedParenthood.org. Also, the birth control shot is 94% effective. The birth control vaginal ring is 91% effective. The patch is 91%. The birth control pill is 91%. And then sterilization, which would be like getting your tubes tied, as some people say, would be 99% effective. And also a vasectomy is 99% effective. And so when we're talking about effectiveness of birth control, we also want to remind you that um, things do fail. As, as good as the percentage is, um, you do need to be using birth control and contraceptive in the proper way. If you're not following the proper guidelines or techniques, your birth control could fail. So I guess what, what are all these like in common? What does that mean, birth control? So birth control is important to talk about because some people don't want to get pregnant and it might be hard to know with all these options out there what's best for you and how they work. But essentially, birth control, whether it be an implant, a shot, a contraceptive that you're taking orally, there are so many options out there, but they're all meant to prevent a pregnancy from occurring in the first place. So that's the, that's the whole point. <laughs> so what are some of the easier options to use when it comes to birth control? Well, there's two different methods that just get put in and then you're good for a while. So there's the birth control implant, which is usually good up to five years. And then you have the IUD, which is good for about three to 12 years. And then also more of the permanent options is the sterilization and then the vasectomy. And of course, the numbers all depend on your body and what your doctor says and what kind of birth control method that you use. So there's a lot of different um, kind of negative and positive side effects that come with birth control. Um, I've definitely heard that some birth controls help with periods. Um, can you kind of explain which ones might do that more effectively than others? Yeah, I definitely can. So the birth control implant, IUD, and birth control shot can make your periods and cramps lighter and maybe even go away. It really depends on your body. Each body reacts differently to each birth control. And then 
for the birth control vaginal ring. It helps regulate and lighten periods. It eases your period symptoms. And then you can also skip your periods with that. And then with the birth control patch and the birth control pill, periods can lighten and it'll ease period symptoms. And then it can also skip periods as well. So once again, it really depends on your body and how your body reacts. You need to choose which birth control method is best for you. And so if some of those are better with periods, are there some birth controls that are better preventing um, STIs? Yes. So when it comes to STIs, some good options would be using a condom or using an internal condom. So a regular condom helps prevent STIs during oral, vaginal, or anal sex. And then an internal condom helps prevent STIs during vaginal or anal sex. It sounds like you're throwing around some medical jargon. Do you have to go to a doctor or nurse for all of these methods? Some of these methods, how does it, how do you get birth control? Yeah, great question, Kultra. So when you get the birth control implant or the IUD, that needs to be placed and removed by a doctor or nurse. And then the birth control shot. You get or give yourself a shot every three months. And then the birth control vaginal ring, you'll need a prescription from a doctor or nurse for that. The birth control patch, you'll need a prescription as well. And then along with that, pretty much a lot of the other ones. So the diaphragm birth control method, the cervical cap birth control method, all need that prescription. And then obviously when you get your quote-unquote tubes tied, you'll need the procedure done by a doctor or nurse, and then also a vasectomy needs to be done by a doctor or nurse. So which of these methods um, don't use as many hormones? Because I know that can kind of mess with your body, um, cause a few different side effects. Yeah, so the birth control implant has progestin only and no estrogen, and Same with the birth control shot. And then when it comes to the IUD, it really depends on what IUD you get. So there's no hormones in the copper IUD and there's no estrogen in the hormonal IUDs. The condom or internal condom uses no hormones. Also with the diaphragm option of birth control and the birth control sponge and spermicide gel birth control includes no hormones. The cervical cap and then the fertility awareness, the withdrawal or pull-out method, all have no hormones. And then the sterilization method and the vasectomy include no hormones. And then breastfeeding as birth control uses your body's own hormones. From what you're saying, um, you don't always need a product when it comes to birth control. Um, is that kind of accurate? Do you have to, you know, how, how much do these things cost? Some different options. It really depends on your insurance and the options in the state that you're in, but the birth control implant and the IUD are on the higher end of 1300 and the lower end birth control methods would be the condom or the internal condom 
The birth control pill can be up to about $50, so it really depends on your insurance and the options that you have in your state. And later on, I will go into some of the options available in Wisconsin and, and options in general to help keep cost of birth control down. But yeah, just in general, it's good to know. You can't just walk into a store and be like, I'd like this for this many dollars. And yeah, it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's always going to be a little bit different depending on your circumstances. Right. One of the kind of key components of birth control is that it should be accessible to everybody. Everybody should be able to get birth control. You know, I, I guess you just need to ask the right questions to the right people and hopefully they point you in the right direction. So how often do you need to use some of these methods? Like if I had an implant, would I have to put an implant to go to the doctor every time that I wanted to have sex? Um, How do those types of things work? Yeah, good question. So the implant would last up to about five years. It really depends on what specific implant you get. The IUD, three to 12 years, but that also depends on which IUD you get. Um, with the IUD, one thing that makes a difference is whether you're getting a copper IUD or a hormonal IUD, each brand and different type will have different um, lifespan. With everything that we've talked about and discussed, um, we do really want to encourage you to do your own research. Keep in mind that you know your body the best and, uh, you should know both the good and the bad of each of these things, especially when it's going to be your body. Hopefully we've kind of laid a foundation and brought your anxiety down about some of these sexual health and reproductive health things, um, but they are still anxiety-inducing, um, especially when we've been isolated through the pandemic and through COVID, um, and just life in general has been kind of distant the last two years. Um, so pregnancy and STIs are probably the first thing that come to mind um, when we talk about sexual health. Um, what should we know about STIs? Well, you know, first I want to say you're absolutely correct that, boy, it's been a a weird couple of years here in COVID-19 and everybody's been so isolated. So yeah, with people being kept apart like they have been, that can bring out a lot of anxieties. And it's like we've forgotten to how, what it's like to be human in some ways, to be social beings. So it's not uncommon to get a little nervous sometimes, but it's also, uh, It's okay to ask questions and to learn. That's why we're here to talk about this. So with STIs, I'm sure some of you listening might be wondering, why are they saying STI? Aren't they called STDs? Well, the term sexually transmitted disease has kind of changed to better reflect what's really going on, which would be a sexually transmitted infection. The reason for this is that the word disease usually indicates that uh, the condition is showing symptoms caused by an infection or that it's progressive, it might stick around or it has ongoing health impacts or that it might even get worse. But infections, on the other hand, can be asymptomatic. So somebody could have an infection without having a disease. And that's why STI is becoming the more common term since STI can be applied to either symptomatic or asymptomatic conditions. And also because the word disease just carries a lot of shame and stigma with it. And when you tie that to sex, that shame and stigma kind of doubles up. So just trying to be conscious of the language we use and um, reduce that shame and stigma. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to 
having health or sex ed classes where the entire discussion about sexual health probably revolved around describing the worst case scenario of symptoms of every STI. Yeah. Maybe even with pictures accompanying it to demonstrate, you know, don't ever have sex or you'll die. Um, (laughs) Yeah. High school health definitely scares you. (laughs) It's something. Yeah. Yeah. If you get anything at all. Right. But they'd make it seem like it's the absolute end of the world. And, and like we've said already, historically, there's been a lot of shame and stigma around STIs, even the way we talk about getting tested, asking, are you clean? And so on, instead of saying, have you been tested? You know, I did take a shower. Thank you. Right. Yeah. You're not <laughs> dirty if you have an STI. Like, right. You're not an uncleanly person. So it, it actually might surprise you to know that according to the CDC, one in five people have an STI. And I'm not saying that to scare you, but rather to help folks understand just how common it is and that it is, in fact, not the end of the world. All STIs are treatable and most are curable. A lot of STIs can be pretty easily taken care of with a round of antibiotics. And there are even medications to prevent the spread of HIV at this point, which is really incredible seeing how far the medical field has come with all these advances. I, I love it. I love seeing all that. So that's why we're here to talk about it. And I know that being tested um, or being diagnosed with an STI can be a scary experience, but it's important to know your status so that you can adequately take care of your own health and safety, as well as the health and safety of your partners. I think when we talk about testing, the more often you go, the less awkward I think it becomes. Yes. Like it's, it's definitely awkward. It's definitely not a comfortable thing to do, but once you have it, have done it a few times, Mm -hmm. like it's not, it's not as bad. And quite frankly, the nurses do it probably several times a day. Oh yeah. And and do not care. Right. (laughs) It's nothing new to them. Right. I remember, I think it was probably the first time I ever got STI tested at my clinic and um, my bills were getting mailed to my parents, and my mom just saw the <laughs> saw the envelope, didn't read my name on it, thought it was for her, and right. opened it up. And she called me and said, I'm so sorry, I opened this letter that was for you, and like it, it, or I thought it was for me. And I just remember like feeling the color leave my right. face and feeling <laughs> so scared, but she, she would know that I got tested when really it's like she she. she should be proud of me right. for yeah. being That's a responsible. Yeah. Like maybe we need to right. start like lunch things yeah. where we all get tested and then go have lunch together. Perfect. To I'm so down. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm like, yeah, I did a good thing. Why am I embarrassed about it? Right. Like instead of a monthly book club, be like, yeah. did you get tested this yeah. month? Hey, yeah. me too. Awesome. Perfect. <laughs> Let's celebrate. <laughs> so when we do talk about testing, when do you go in? Do you just go in every time you have sex? Um, should you go once a month? Is that a good kind of parameter to set? Or does it depend on the person? It really depends on that person's circumstances. If somebody suspects that they have an STI, for example, you know, if they're experiencing symptoms, then yeah, absolutely. They should make an appointment to get tested for sure. But as I mentioned before, a lot of STIs actually might be asymptomatic, or in other words, they might not actively show symptoms 
So somebody who has an STI might not even know it at all unless they were to get tested. And I should note that STIs won't show up on a test immediately after sexual contact and exposure to infection. You know, they need some time to, I guess, stew in there. Yeah, (laughs) incubate's a better word, I guess, than stew, which is really gross of me to say, I guess, but... That's where my brain went. Uh, but yeah. It's an awkward topic. Where <laughs> see, we're not yeah. professionals yeah, at this either. Right, right. It's, yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> but yeah, so don't expect like, okay, I just had unprotected sex and I'm going to walk on over to the clinic and get tested right now because it won't show up right away. So then the question is, when's the right time, right? Well, again, that depends. It's a good idea to get tested if you've been with a new sexual partner If your partners have other sexual partners and it's been between three and six months since you've been tested, uh, if you've had sex without a condom or the condom broke, or if you notice any unusual or concerning symptoms, or of course, if you know you've been sexually active with somebody who has been diagnosed with an STI. Uh, Some STIs might take a matter of days for accurate results to show up, while others can take weeks or sometimes months. And that's why it's important to continue getting screened according to your healthcare provider's recommendations and to get follow-up screenings as necessary. I know it's not always fun or comfortable. And um, for a lot of people, that can be really awkward and kind of foreign because, again, it's not something we talk about all the time. But it's really important to be honest with your healthcare provider about your sex life because that way they can make sure that they're getting you the right tests. Besides... Like we said before, doctors hear this stuff all the time. They're used to it. They've heard it all. Mm-hmm. If you haven't been STI tested before, I'll let you know that it's usually pretty simple. A lot of the times, they all they require would be like a simple urine test or a urine sample. So that's all you'd need to give them is a little pee in a cup and that's it. There are different kinds of tests for different STIs. It's not like just one universal test for all of them. And some other tests might require maybe blood tests or maybe a cheek swab, possibly a physical examination of the area and um, maybe collection of swabs from the genitals or other areas that might be affected, like the anus or maybe the throat. But it's quick and it's easy and you owe it to yourself and to your partners to get tested for the sake of safety. As for preventing STIs, I know Alyssa covered a couple of the options earlier, but make sure you're using condoms, um, whether that be external condoms, which is, I think, what most people are most familiar with, or internal condoms that would go inside the vagina, as well as dental dams, which I think we don't hear that one very often. But yeah, a dental dam would be another barrier method like a condom, but it's kind of just like a sheet that would be used to cover the genitals, usually for oral sex, which I think it's important to bring that up here as well. Yeah, oral sex needs it too. (laughs) So I guess one thing that we kind of talked about a little bit, but we really didn't go into detail, um, is symptoms. What's kind of the tipping point or like what, what are things that you should really take into consideration, not just my body's being weird today? Right. Yeah, that's a good question, too. Like I said, a lot of people won't have symptoms. It's actually very common not to have symptoms. But if you do have symptoms, 
I mean, you know your own body best, right? If you're noticing changes in your vaginal discharge or maybe you're smelling a funky smell or something. Maybe you're a little itchy. Right. Those might be signs that you want to get tested. Now, again, I just want to say that all bodies are different. And just because you have a smell or something doesn't mean that you have an STI. Bodies are going to smell. You know, we're not air fresheners. Right. (laughs) And um, a lot of times I think people get really freaked out or they worry that their body is um, unusual or different than other people's. And so it's like something's wrong and they have a problem and they're likely isn't one but you know there's a difference between just like a natural scent and something's wrong so if if it's really smelling pretty not good definitely get checked out same thing like culture said if you're itching or burning that's a good point to probably schedule a test and also you know look for a difference in color of your discharge and this is for people with penises too so don't just think it's vaginas if you're noticing some of these symptoms, please get tested. Like I said, you owe it to yourself and to your partners. When you're noticing those changes or you're feeling like something's not right, that would be a, a good time to go do that. And I mean, at the end of the day, if you are feeling uncomfortable or feeling some of these things, it's you're really helping yourself. You know, right. There's no person that will benefit more from getting tested than you yourself. Right. If you're... <laughs> If your genitals are swollen and in pain and you're not going in because you're uncomfortable. Right. Like, I hate to laugh. Your coworkers it, don't know. They have right. No idea you know, I don't want to shame anybody. I'm laughing more because I've been like in situations for myself where I'm like too nervous to go do something. Right. But or, like you feel stupid or. Right. Or, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, you need to have that address mm-hmm. though, because if there is an issue, depending on what's going on it could lead to other health complications that could be much more serious. So you got to get that checked out. And if there is something there, get it treated. Right. And like doctors aren't asking questions to shame you. Like they need to know the circumstances so they can properly identify and address whatever your body's doing. Yep. So when it comes to sexual health, um, pregnancy is obviously a huge concern or not even a concern, a huge factor for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. You know, it really is another one of those things. I know I keep saying it, but that depends for everybody what their circumstances are. For some people, it might be really exciting or joyful to find out that they're pregnant. And for others, that can be a really scary, lonely, intimidating experience. And sometimes it's a whole mix of those feelings and more. No one reaction is more valid than another. Regardless of how a person's feeling about pregnancy, there are things that they should know and consider. So let's take it from the top, starting with contraception, bringing it back around to uh, the discussion we had earlier just a little bit. For people who aren't pregnant and are hoping to remain not pregnant, of course, there are a whole bunch of birth control methods, like Alyssa mentioned, and it's great to know what options are out there how they work, and how they interact with your body and your body chemistry so that you can make an informed decision about what is going to work best for you. Planned Parenthood's website actually has a quiz available online that can help you determine what options might be a good fit for you depending on, you know, your own circumstances and finances and your body chemistry, what's normal for you. 
And that's a really awesome place to start learning about birth control options and um, figuring out what you want to pursue if you want to pursue birth control. But I also advise you to talk to a medical professional and then they can help you decide also. If you're talking to somebody who has a medical background, they'll likely be able to point you in the right direction pretty well. And of course, you can put that newfound knowledge to use when you talk to your doc about all that. So hopefully they'll be impressed with you. Another option I want to bring up here is emergency contraception. I think there's a lot of misconception out there about what this is. A lot of people are probably most familiar with the term morning after pill. And you might know the brand Plan B, which is pretty common, but there's more to it. So let's dig into that a little bit. There seems to sometimes be this misconception that emergency contraception is the same as an abortion pill, but that is actually not accurate. So emergency contraception works by preventing pregnancy, not by ending pregnancy. People don't get pregnant immediately after having sex, kind of like we talked about with STIs. So in the days following, you can use emergency contraception to prevent pregnancy from happening. Emergency contraceptive pills work by halting ovulation, meaning it'll stop the body from releasing an egg. In theory, that's what you're taking it to do. But this only works if ovulation hasn't already started, and it won't work for somebody who's already pregnant. So it can depend on your body and your cycle. Uh, earlier, Alyssa mentioned that IUDs are an option, and hormonal ones are not an option for emergency contraception, but... The copper IUD is a non-hormonal birth control option that can also be used as emergency contraception. Uh, the copper IUD works by kind of warding off sperm, which evidently do not like copper. <laughs> if it's placed within five days of unprotected sex, it's highly effective at preventing pregnancy, and it's actually considered the most effective form of emergency contraception. Plus, it's a bonus um, that it can be left in place for up to 12 years if you want to use it as a birth control method moving forward. I know Alyssa mentioned that a little bit earlier. That's a long time for a birth control method. Taking a pill might be a more familiar option. The sooner you take the pill, the more likely it is to be effective. There are a few different types that you should know about. Again, Plan B is a really well-recognized name, and Plan B and other over-the-counter options are probably most common. They can be found at most drugstores and usually cost somewhere around $50 or so, but a lot of times if you go to a health clinic like the Public Health Department or Planned Parenthood, you can get it cheaper. There are a lot of programs that help assist with payment for those options, so just be aware of that. You might not have to pay a whole chunk of money if, if you look into some of those other options. But these, taking a emergency contraceptive pill, it should be taken within three days, which would be 72 hours of unprotected sex, since it's less likely to be effective outside of that time frame. It's ideal to take it within 24 hours, though, since it's more likely to be effective the earlier you take it. Another thing that you should know about Plan B that a lot of people don't talk about, unfortunately, is that it may not work for people who weigh more than 155 pounds. A lot of people aren't aware about this, and I don't hear people discuss it a lot. I didn't personally know this until I took a, a sexual health class in college, but obviously it's really important to know that so that you're not relying on a pill that might not um, work, that might not be suited for your body. There's also another pill that's called 
Ella that works similarly, but it's more effective than Plan B. This one can be taken within five days or 120 hours of unprotected sex, but you'll need a prescription to get this one. And like other emergency contraception, the earlier you're able to take it, the more likely it is to be effective. As far as the weight part goes, like I said with Plan B, it may not work as effectively for people who weigh more than 195 pounds. So it has a little bit of a different limit than the Plan B, just so you can keep that in mind. But it is the most effective emergency contraceptive pill available. Uh, I will also add that the copper IUD has no weight restrictions, if anybody was wondering. Emergency contraception is completely safe. It doesn't impact a person's ability to get pregnant in, in the future. Plan B is probably the easiest to get your hands on because it's an over-the-counter med, but I'll also add that there's an option to safely get an online consult and prescription for Ella with next day delivery so that you can get it within a five-day window if you can't get to a medical provider in person. And that's that would be through a medical provider, so you're not just getting it from some shady, weird corner of the internet, you know. Yeah, please don't do that. Yeah, no. Don't if don't buy mystery pills online. <laughs> don't tell anybody that cat told you to do that, because I didn't. <laughs> Only do it safely with a medical provider. Yeah, also, like I said. Although emergency contraception isn't dangerous to take, it's not meant to be used as a regular method of contraception. So um, It shouldn't be used like ibuprofen or something. Right, exactly. And that's mostly because they're not as effective as other methods that are meant to be used consistently. So birth control pills and other methods of birth control are meant to be, like, okay, like I said, the pill, for example, is meant to be taken daily, right? Mm -hmm. This is not meant to be taken daily. Not at all. Also, that would not be cost effective at all to try and take a plan B that frequently. So you're better off if if you feel like you need it consistently enough to just to probably explore other birth control options. But, of course, things happen, and sometimes this is a good option if it's something you're worried about. If you want to prevent pregnancy that you might be worried about after unprotected sex or whatever it might be. Yeah, those are the facts about emergency contraception. So when it comes to pregnancy, how do you even know that you're pregnant? Is there a foolproof way to find that out? Or is there, what's the best way to understand that about your body? Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, so how, how do you tell if you're pregnant, right? Some people might suspect they're pregnant if their period didn't come on time. That's, you know, I think probably what most people think of first, but, um, they might be feeling other symptoms like nauseousness or maybe they have swollen breasts or something else like that. But really the only way to be sure is to take a pregnancy test. Home pregnancy tests are actually pretty reliable and false positives aren't as common as people seem to think that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know. It's, I understand. Think, right. I think people worry about that a lot when in reality they tend to be pretty on the mark pregnancy tests, no matter where they come from, I I think people are like, oh, like, more expensive, the better. That's not necessarily true either. In fact, the ones that they're going to have at a clinic are probably the same as what they're going to have at, like, the dollar store. Oh. Yeah. It's nice that they're accessible, they're not super expensive, and they are a pretty surefire way to know if you're pregnant. On the note of false positives, sometimes they can happen if fertilization takes place but doesn't actually progress, which, by the way, that's about half of all fertilizations 
Um, half of all fertilizations never implant and progress to pregnancy. And some drugs that contain HCG can throw off a test, but typically a positive is a positive. False negatives, however, are more common. So it's recommended if you take a test, take another one a week later or a week after getting a negative result, just to be sure. This can sometimes happen if a test is taken too early or if the directions weren't followed exactly right. And if you get a positive test, it's a good idea to check in with your doctor or another healthcare professional so that they can confirm the result for you and can figure out what your next steps will be. So I know we talked about taking pregnancy tests too early and not waiting long enough because you can't just Mm -hmm. show that right away. Right. Is there really ever a point where it's too late to take a pregnancy test or will it always show the same results once you're pregnant? Yeah, so the too early thing is one thing, but I don't think there should ever be a point where it's too late to take a pregnancy test. Once you've passed that point of it being detectable, it's always going to be. Yep, you should be able to figure that out. Yep, absolutely. So if you choose to not take a pregnancy test and you have symptoms, what are some of those symptoms that it looks like? Yeah, so when somebody decides to go through with a pregnancy, we usually hear about symptoms people experience in the first few months. Often we hear about people being fatigued or going through morning sickness, that nausea, indigestion, and sometimes they can have some funky bowels, uh, more frequent urination, and of course, emotional response to their pregnancy is really common. So those are some of the beginning things to look for, or some of the things we commonly hear about in the beginning of a pregnancy. But as a pregnancy moves along and they approach the second trimester, they might experience some new symptoms like their ankles and feet might start swelling or their breasts might be enlarged. They might have back aches and headaches and dizziness. Some of the previous symptoms that we mentioned might even persist or worsen, though they could also subside some. It really is a case-by-case basis. Uh, Everybody's different. And when it comes to the end of pregnancy symptoms, we don't seem to openly discuss those as much, at least in my experience. So I want to talk about those a little bit. Uh, Later in pregnancy, people might notice changes in vaginal discharge or that discharge often becomes heavier They might notice changes in their hair, their skin, their nails. They might gain new aches and pains, some breast leakage sometimes, even hemorrhoids, shortness of breath, varicose veins. And of course, again, there are likely to be emotional responses after being pregnant for that long. Most people are pretty sick of being pregnant by the end of their pregnancy. It's a lot for the body to go through. No, this definitely kind of feels like health class and going back and visiting like very basic concepts, but some things that some people just never hear of. Right, absolutely. And, you know, my goal in talking about this is I don't want it to be me just covering the very basic stuff, but also some things that I might think are basic or that might be common sense to me. Right. Not everybody's had the same opportunity to learn about. So I do think it's important to cover those things also, even if it's just a little bit here and there. But I love it. For sure. So we just talked a lot about the end of pregnancy. Uh, Explain to me this cataclysmic event called labor. 
Okay, so yeah, let's talk about the real end of pregnancy. Um, Once the baby decides that it's time for their grand debut, that's when labor begins. Contractions that feel like something like immense, intense menstrual cramps will start occurring, uh, usually about 20 to 30 minutes apart, and they progressively occur closer and closer together. Meanwhile, the cervix is expanding to about 10 centimeters to prepare for delivery. That's the part where we usually see in movies and TV where it's like really intense and the the person in labor is sweating and shaking and everybody's screaming. Yeah, people are cursing yeah. at the doctors. Exactly. Okay. So that like later part of labor when those contractions are closer together, that's usually considered the toughest and most exhausting part of the birthing process, understandably so. That's the part where the parent has to push and Usually the doctor and the rest of the present birthing crew will try to encourage the person giving birth to keep going until the baby has at last emerged. And just so everybody knows, a fresh newborn isn't going to look like they do in the movies. Just by the way. Yep. (laughs) They'll probably be a little blue and a little misshapen compared to what you're used to. And um, sometimes they have soft little hairs covering their body when they're first born you know, these are things that, again, we don't see them in media. We don't talk right. about things like this openly. Somebody might have a baby and be like, what, what is this hair on my baby? Or why is it blue? Well, and it's not like they come out like they just were freshly bathed either. Exactly. Like, there's, there's juices. Yeah, it's going to be a little messy. Birth isn't just like a clean, easy process. Right. You know, that's, that's going to happen. That's nature. Mm-hmm. That's how the body works. I think one of the labor things that I didn't know about that kind of surprised and freaked me out was that you poop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're quick to clean that up, though, so you don't even notice you did it. (laughs) Right. And that can be, like, scary and embarrassing, but, you know, it's just that's the body doing what the body does, and like we've said before, doctors have seen this stuff before. just another day for them. Exactly. They're used to it. Another point I want to make, too, is it's not over when the baby's born because time for an encore, right? Uh, the placenta's still got to come out. So the uterus will start contracting again until the placenta is also delivered, which, uh, again, people don't talk about that part right. of birth. Like, you had your baby and that's the end. No, like, you got to, that placenta yeah, can't just sit so, in there. Yeah. Yep. Um, so once that's out, take a bow, show's over. Of course, C-sections are another fairly common method of delivery too and that particularly comes in when complications arise and that might make it unsafe to deliver vaginally so just another method and there's nothing i don't know how to say it nothing inherently wrong exactly i feel like sometimes like i would never even want to imply that that was a thought in my mind because it's not but i think sometimes people have this pressure to deliver vaginally or people think that I don't know, that's like the only way to go. Or that there's this one standard of birth. Right. Yeah. Like the kind of stigma of not taking any epidurals or taking anything that would right. help your body relax and calm down but still do its job. And mm-hmm. Every body is different. It's going to be a different experience for every right. person. And, you know, sometimes things arise that you weren't planning for and you just have right. to roll with the punches. Yeah. Like you, you don't could really want to have a natural birth, but then something comes up. Absolutely. It's just not a possibility. It could be detrimental to you and mm-hmm. or your child's health. Yeah, exactly. So 
as much as you might have this perfect birth plan in your head, you should be prepared that right. sometimes something could happen. The baby and, has another plan for you. Right. And that's okay. You know, you're not a failure or you're not, you know, doing it any better or worse one way or another. What's best for you is best for you. I think we just hope for a safe delivery and a healthy baby and that's what matters. So pregnancy obviously does a lot on your body while you're pregnant and during that whole building a baby process. How does your body recover after you've delivered? That's a really great question. Um, yeah, like you said, it's an exhausting about nine-month period of being pregnant. And I think some people just expect to be like, oh, it's this, you're completely relieved after you give birth and things are back to the way they were pre-pregnancy. But things don't just go back to the way they were. And it takes a lot of time for the body to heal, for new parents to adjust to their roles. It can be really exhausting and not just physically, because, of course, that's a big process for your body to go through. No kidding. <laughs> you know, you can have tears and all kinds of things that are going to be painful and are going to take time to physically heal, but also take into account mental health, too, right? Oh, yep. Yeah, that, I mean, people experience postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. It can be a really depressing experience after giving birth, especially when you've had this identity as, like, a pregnant person like you've, you've you're supposed of, to be like that glowing aura right. of happiness and you've and, come to terms yeah. with that identity and now all of a sudden it's like okay now you're actually a parent right that's a whole nother experience and being pregnant is one thing taking care of a child is a whole nother mm -hmm. you like, know i think even if you have children a lot of people still go through that and mm -hmm. you know have those bumps and hiccups after right. their second, third child where mm -hmm. they're just like, oh no, what did I do? <laughs> right. Like, was this right? Like, am I prepared enough? Yeah. Can I do this? Yeah. You're waking mm -hmm. up in the middle of the night to feed your baby. And you're not getting any sleep. You're right. probably, uh, babies are heavy. <laughs> yeah. Carrying them around in your arms all day even is just like right. a lot. And, and those sound like basic things, but they can really take a toll on you. Right. You know, and like these little things. Exactly. And like as much as you want it, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that there's things that happen that. Yeah. And you're allowed to feel those feelings. Absolutely. It's a big adjustment. It takes time. And, you know, all those feelings are completely normal and valid. It's. I know it feels weird to be like, I hate motherhood or I'm depressed about being a mom despite being excited to have right. a child yeah. or having wanted a baby my whole life. It still happens to people. Right. And it's like such a normal, common feeling that yeah. doesn't get talked about. Exactly. And yeah, because I think people worry about being shamed for that. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be excited. You're supposed to do right. everything, drop your right. whole life and take care yeah. of your baby. And that's all that matters to you now. Uh -huh. Right, whether that's child yeah. number one or number five. Right, yeah. and now suddenly you have to develop a whole new identity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's something to take into consideration, too. And obviously this whole discussion is just a very oversimplified explanation of the whole birth and parenting mm -hmm. process, of course. And so I don't, want <laughs> right. I don't want any parents out there to be like, it's so much more than that, because I absolutely recognize that it is so much more than that. And, you know, the whole process of birth and parenting, I could probably give a whole lecture on that alone if I oh, had the sure. time to go into more detail about it. But, you know, I just kind of wanted to cover the basics of that because if we're going to talk about 
safe and healthy sex lives. You kind of—that's part of it, you right? Know? You have to prepare for what happens right. after sex, too, for sure. So, with that context of parenthood being hard, becoming a parent is not the only option when you become pregnant. Let's talk a bit about some of the other options and some of the pros, cons, drawbacks, and stigma around them. Yeah, let's jump into that for sure. That's a whole other discussion to have here, and it's equally as important. So. Yeah, some people might not feel that parenthood is for them for one reason or another. Maybe they're not prepared or maybe they just don't want children or, you know, it could be a whole multitude of reasons. doesn't matter to me. If you don't want a kid, that's your choice, right? So there are some different avenues to look at there. And some people might prefer the option of adoption. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple different types of adoption. So there's closed adoption where the birth parent relinquishes their rights to the family adopting the child, and the adopting family doesn't meet the birth parent. They're only given basic information about the birth parent, mostly, you know, health-related. And then there's also open adoptions, which have become more of the norm these days, and open adoptions are a lot more flexible. They allow the birth parent and the adoptive family to jointly come up with agreements that work best for them, and they aren't so rigid, rigid, and they offer a lot of different options for birth parents and families looking to adopt. So they kind of come up with the conditions and the terms of that adoption together, whether that means that the birth parent is involved in the life of their child and their adopted family or whatever the case might be. Yeah, it's a lot more flexible. Of course, there's also the option of abortion, which I know is very stigmatized and not well talked about. So um, it's a sticky conversation. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the fact about abortions, because I think that a lot of people don't know what those procedures are like or what they entail or, you know, it's kind of a mystery. Right. Like you just talk about it as one lump thing, right. never the details of it. Exactly. So we're going to talk about just like the plain hard facts here with abortion. Like adoption, there's also a couple different types of abortions. Usually abortions are performed as an outpatient procedure. The two different types would be medical and surgical. And I know that medical and surgical sound kind of intimidating probably. So I don't want to just leave it at, there's medical and surgical. I'd like to explain the difference between those a little bit so that people can have a better understanding and not have abortion just be this mystery procedure, right? So medical abortions are what most people probably know as a pill abortion, where a healthcare provider gives a patient the dose of medication at a clinic, and then the patient is also given an additional dose of medication to take at home, usually a day or two later. It kind of depends on the healthcare provider's instructions. What's expected after taking those medications? Heavy bleeding and intense cramping can be pretty common particularly after the second dose is taken. And people can sometimes experience side effects like nausea or fatigue, headaches, chills, sometimes even um, fevers as their body goes through this process because it is a lot. Like, you know, anything <laughs> right? Anything involving your uterus is usually just a lot. Right, it does a lot to your body. It's kind of yeah. where all your hormones are concentrated and you know, putting right. a little extra something in Absolutely. there is going to is gonna throw it out of whack. Yep, so you're going to get crampy, and I mean, 
it's it's like having a period or giving birth where your mm-hmm. your uterus is having these contractions to expel the contents of the uterus. Right. You're you're introducing a stimuli right. to your body and it's reacting. Yep. Yep. So you're gonna feel that. And because of the potential side effects, it's recommended that a person having the abortion has somebody available to accompany them in case they need extra support or assistance, or even just to kind of be on call in a way. Right. Because you, you never know what your body's mm-hmm. going to do. Some people are probably pretty okay, and some people might think this is the worst thing ever, and it sucks, and I just need somebody there for me. And that's totally right. understandable. And as far as medical abortions go, they're usually possible until about 10 weeks of pregnancy. That's usually what's pretty common. Surgical abortions, again, I know surgical sounds like, ooh, scary, but I promise you they're not as scary as they sound. So I want to talk a little bit about that as well. And surgical abortions are usually performed up until about the middle or end of the first trimester of pregnancy, depending on where you're located. You know, laws are going to be different state to state. Um, it really depends on your geographical location and your local laws. But aspiration is the name of a process where the cervix is numbed and then dilated. And then a really tiny little flexible tube is inserted into the uterus and it uses suction to remove the contents which again i know that can sound scary or intense or very well i mean it is medical so it kind of right. sounds like <laughs> medical jargon right and it, it certainly can be scary and intense in some ways but you should also know that medically speaking it's a pretty simple and safe procedure and it usually only takes between five and ten minutes so it's you know even though it's a little invasive it's a pretty quick procedure. There's also another surgical option called dilation and evacuation, sometimes called D and E for short, which is similar to aspiration, but it's less common since this method is typically used in pregnancies in the second trimester and induced abortions are rare past the first trimester. So this is a procedure that's more often used when medically necessary. If there's a complication encountered where the fetus has to be evacuated, if it's risking either the the baby's or the parent's health, this is, you know, if it's further along, this is typically the procedure that they would go with. Right. And I think that's a really good point to bring up. Like abortions aren't just for somebody who doesn't want to have children. Mm-hmm. You know, abortions can be a medical necessity so that a mother doesn't die or a child's not born with severe health defects that would, Mm -hmm. you know, make their life short and really painful. Right. If if it's not a viable pregnancy, why would we put somebody through carrying out their entire pregnancy just knowing that... Right. Knowing that their child won't survive or that their child will live hooked up to machines. Like that's, you know, it's not just for... And how traumatic for right. the parent then to know I oh, have absolutely. to live with this in this yeah. being that I wanted to love and care for right. in my body. And it's only going to know pain. Right. I have yeah. to carry this to term and know that I will not have. Right. You're not going to have a healthy child. baby where you get to yeah. bring to the playground. Like, yeah. And I know that's really hard to hear and really hard to talk about. And mm-hmm. I absolutely feel with all my heart for people who have had to go through that before. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And even for people who are 100% sure that they want an abortion, people who don't want kids and are right. electing to take part in this procedure, 
it's not fun for anybody. Right. It's not like you just go in and do it and then right. carry on. It's like you need some self-care after right. that, you know, whether you want to do it or not. It is exhausting. It's a lot on your body again. Mm-hmm. You know, people can be very sure about wanting an abortion and it still sucks. Nobody's ever excited to go through that process. There's this misconception or this idea that, oh, people are just using abortion as a form of birth control. And right. I see nobody's. Or like an aggressive that. way to exercise their rights. Like, right, yeah. Nobody wants an abortion. No. Abortions suck. And it's kind of interesting because I think no matter where you sit on this, um, on how you feel about abortions, mm-hmm. I think everybody can agree that we would love to not have abortions have to happen. Right, um, right. Absolutely. But like in some cases, they're they medically yeah. necessary. Right, yeah. absolutely. Because of that and because some people, you, you never know the circumstances, because somebody might end up pregnant and mm-hmm. not be able to or wanting to take care of a child, we need to keep that option open right. for those folks. Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, it's not just about wanting a child or not. It's mm-hmm. also about... How do you take care of the child? Right. Are you able to take care of the child? You know, is do you have a support system that you can do that? Right. And kind of bringing it full circle, that's exactly why these conversations are important in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because if people aren't given proper sex education or if they're too ashamed right. to talk to a parent or a mm-hmm. trusted adult or somebody right. about healthy sexuality. Absolutely. If you're not given access to condoms and birth control. Mm-hmm. And informed about those choices. Right. And like just walking away from the idea that it has to be black and white. Right. Like there's so many things that could be happening that you or I don't know about in somebody's situation Mm -hmm. that, you know, makes it very reasonable. Exactly. So when people aren't given those tools and aren't having these conversations openly, what are they left to do? Right. What options do they have? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's scary. Not knowing. Uh-huh. Right. Cause, cause when you take away somebody's right or, you know, availability to, you know, mm-hmm. seek these, these things, you know, you cause more isolation, you cause a lot of other issues. And then you have people doing things to themselves that mm-hmm. are not medically appropriate or responsible and Oh, likely cause more harm to themselves, whether they, you know, instead of just mm-hmm. going to the doctor like they maybe wanted and, you know, having it, right. having their body taken care of the right way. Mm-hmm. I know it's a tricky subject and I understand that people get very, mm-hmm. in their feelings about it and that's understandable. Yeah. But if we're going to talk about the importance of life, I think that we have to look also, at the big picture. Yeah. yeah. Look at the big picture. Are we going to leave people to up to drastic measures where they're going to mm-hmm. harm themselves trying to end a pregnancy or right you know, exactly yeah yeah because I mean that that's exactly the point you know some people just really don't want to be pregnant for whatever reason right and that's and that can be up to them mentally mm-hmm. torture right why put somebody through that or put somebody in a position where they're going to when they're never going to be in the right. space to want that. Yeah. And yeah. they could cause harm to themselves. They could cause harm to the child. Right. Yeah. It's just not, not ideal. Right. Yeah. So I know it's a complicated situation. You got to talk about it, right? Exactly.
I think talking about abortion is definitely a heavy topic, but another heavy topic that we want to bring up is miscarriages. We're not talking about this to shame anybody, uh, but we want to make sure that people understand these topics and, you know, are, you know, we're, we're here to break the silence on these things and to discuss them in a way that is safe and open and, you know, again, try and stick into the facts as much as we can. Right. And I think miscarriage too is also, it can be a very isolating experience because it's something right. people go through all the time. More people than you know have probably experienced Exactly. This, but nobody is comfortable talking about it. Right. And it's, you know, just as controversial as abortion is and uncomfortable mm-hmm. as talking about STIs, miscarriages might be the most taboo topic when it comes to women's health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's just... Nobody wants to talk about it. And, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why, you mm-hmm. know, whether just not knowing what to say, having been through it before and having that traumatic experience. According to the March of Dimes website, 10 to 15 percent of pregnancies end in miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's think about that for a moment. That's two or three pregnancies out of 20. And we're talking about pregnancies. Yeah. Not women. Right. Think about that. Like that scope, you know, if. If you have a large family and you're one of 10 cousins, you know, there's maybe three miscarriages in your family then. Mm -hmm. And do you know that? Have you ever talked about that? I guarantee that you know somebody who's had a miscarriage, whether they've disclosed that to you or not. Right. And, you know, these, these numbers and rates are even higher when we take into consideration women not even knowing they're pregnant when they miscarry. You know, and it's not that they're doing anything to their bodies or that they're, you know, maliciously or purposely trying to avoid being pregnant. It's mm-hmm. the body just will reject a fetus. You know, mm-hmm. there's too many chromosomes, not enough chromosomes. There's some type of there's something structurally wrong with the fetus that the body just knows isn't going to be viable. You know, it's not that the mother did anything wrong or the couple did anything wrong. The body just knows what, what's going to work and what's not. So on top of the profound grief that somebody feels uh, when going through a miscarriage and afterwards, there's often a lot of guilt. In most cases, miscarriage happens because the fetus is not developing properly. Many studies cite that there are either not enough or too many chromosomes or something Something isn't developing properly, and there's really nothing that the mother could do to curb or prevent it. It's just something that happens, and you can't go to a doctor to fix it. It's just, it's just part of the way that life works. The best way for women and couples who want to bring a healthy child into this world is to seek prenatal care. By this, I mean going to the doctor, getting checkups, following doctor recommendations. They'll give you a whole list of things to avoid. I won't go into all of them because it's a long list. Most common ones are the obvious of avoiding alcohol, drugs, smoking. Another big one is limiting caffeine intake, um, avoiding certain foods, things like that. And so ultimately, if you listen to your doctor, there really isn't much of anything that you can do to avoid miscarriage or to make sure that it doesn't happen. 
There's a couple myths, though, about what could cause a miscarriage. A lot of people think that sexual intercourse, high-intensity exercise, or just going to work could cause a miscarriage, and that's not true. Uh, Granted that you're working in a safe, non-hazardous environment, there's no reason a pregnant woman shouldn't go to work. These things won't cause miscarriage, and they can typically help a person maintain a healthy mindset while pregnant. Miscarriages typically happen in the first 20 weeks of pregnancy, and like I said, many happen without the mother even knowing. This could be a big reason why women don't tell everyone that they are pregnant until a certain point, which also contributes to women not sharing their experiences of miscarriage. Some of the main signs that you are experiencing a miscarriage may be spotting, bleeding, cramps, pain in the abdomen, or you may experience fluid or tissue passing from your vagina. If you are pregnant and experiencing these symptoms, it is very important to seek medical attention, both for your baby's health and for your own. And so many times women are anxious uh, that because they had a miscarriage, they will have another and they'll never be able to have a baby. But that's not true. Women can experience a miscarriage or multiple and go on to have healthy children. Having a miscarriage is very traumatic, but it also doesn't mean that somebody will never be able to have a child. And so that really comes to how people experience miscarriage. And, you know, we won't sugarcoat it. It, you know, it's probably one of the worst things that could ever happen to a parent. And parents may go through a period of overwhelming physical and mental exhaustion. They could feel anger, shock, grief. On top of it, women's bodies need to recover, uh, which takes about a month or two and a lot longer emotionally most of the time. That can lead to a lot of challenges between couples who are at different points of that healing and grief process, especially when one of them has those extra hormones. You know, there's mm. that's not something that you can just talk through sometimes. Right. It's hard, but sometimes, you, yeah, you really have to sit with that. Nobody wants to have to sit with that grief. Right. But it's right. hard. It's part of the healing process. Mm-hmm. Like grief in any other situation, Mm -hmm. sometimes you just have to feel it for a while. Absolutely. And grief is a complex emotion and process. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Everybody goes through it differently and at different paces. Uh, Two people could go through the exact same thing and be on totally different ends of that grieving and healing process. But there's also support groups for women and couples who need some type of extra support in coping and getting through this really terrible thing that has happened. And a lot of times people will make a memorial or find a way to remember that child that they lost. Because even though that child maybe never got to breathe or open its eyes, you know, it's, that's still somebody's baby. That's still somebody's child. And that's a, you know, that takes a piece out of their heart when, when something like this happens. So, you know, how, how do you support somebody who's gone through this? Um, and the best way to support somebody who has experienced miscarriage is to simply show your love and support. Avoiding saying things like, you can always try again. Right. Or at least you have other children. Yeah. Oh. That, those are not helpful phrases. Mm-hmm. As, as much as your intentions may be really good and from the heart saying those things, that's a double-edged sword. Right. You know. Intent doesn't equal impact. 
Right. You know, saying things like, you know, I've been through this before myself. I know how hard it is. And if you haven't been through it before, you know, saying, I've never been in your shoes, but I feel for you. Right. I'll do what I can to support you. Right. And recognize, too, that grief is a weird process. Recovering from trauma is tough, and it's not going to look the same for everybody. Right. You know, allow that person to grieve and heal at their own pace. There's Mm -hmm. no correct timeline for that. Right. Yeah, there's not a good way or a wrong way to grieve. Mm -hmm. It's just what you feel. Right. And with this, too, it's another... One of those things where there's a lot of stigma around it, a lot of mm-hmm. shame around it, a lot of disinformation and or misinformation. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding yeah. about what miscarriage is and mm-hmm. how it happens. And sometimes people are shamed for it and right. people around them will assume, oh, you must have done something wrong. Right. This, or you might think that for yourself. Like, what could I have done differently? Right. And... Yeah. Unfortunately, there's probably not anything. Right. The body is going to do what it does. Right. Yeah. Sometimes that results in a miscarriage. Yeah. So this concludes the final portion of our series on relationships, boundaries, and sex. Oh, my. Through this series, we've had a pretty good time talking about sexual health, safe sex, consent, healthy relationships, boundaries, and a lot of other things that go along with them. Yeah, I think it would be safe to say that a lot of these topics could have been their own episode. There's a lot of information that we didn't get to and frankly are just not experts on. We don't have that limitless knowledge on a lot of these things. Right. Also, because, you know, we could have entire episodes on these things themselves and how expansive some of these topics are, we want to point out that we didn't cover everything as deeply as we would have loved to have done. So be on the lookout. We might have in the future a little mini-sode on some of those things that we'd like to include and like to continue talking about. And we promise, too, to keep it lighthearted and fun to listen to because I know some of this can get either (laughs) it's all scientific and dry and boring or it can be heavy but we want it to be as fun as we can make it right but it'll it'll probably still be a little bit awkward because that's how we're conditioned to feel when we talk about sex Mm -hmm. we also ended on some heavy topics so we really want to encourage you to do some self-care go take a walk journal make yourself some tea or hot cocoa whatever you can do to make yourself feel better about these topics yeah, and you know, like we said, we didn't cover everything. So we really want to encourage you to do some of your own research. Ask your doctors some questions. Call a nurse line. Uh, there's a lot of information out there. So you know, we want to make sure that you get it from somewhere or someone who is reputable. Just getting it from a magazine isn't gonna cut it. Like, that's not. That's probably not the greatest information. It might be if it's a medical medical magazine or a medical journal, but don't. Definitely double-checking your sources and cross-referencing it uh, with another source as well. Yeah, that's super important. That's a really good point, Goldra. Shall we end with a little prompt or a little question to get people thinking? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so uh, as as we end this episode, I kind of want to encourage, we all want to encourage our listeners to pay attention to the needs of your own body and also to the interactions that you're having with others. Let's 
take away from this episode the ability to think about our conversations on healthy relationships and boundaries, as well as everything else that we've talked about with sexual health, because it's so important and you owe it to yourself and to your partners and to everybody around you. Right. And like we talked about in the earlier episodes, like these conversations aren't just about sexuality and sexual health. It's about how we interact with our parents, how we interact with our siblings, with our teachers, Mm -hmm. with uh, the cashier at the grocery store. Like These topics, especially boundaries and healthy relationships, Mm kind of kind of permeate every part of life. Right. They come into play probably a lot more often than you think. And Mm -hmm. I hope that after listening to us and hopefully having conversations about these things with people in your own lives, you can be more conscious of that. And I bet you will be. Um, I know once I started thinking about these things, I notice it in my everyday life, Mm -hmm. especially the consent piece of things, how much we talk about consent in the sexual context all the time, but we use that every day, all the time, Uh you know? Like that, that goes into messing around with your friends and roughhousing and mm-hmm. those types of things where you kind of grow out of that at one point. Right. And it's never really apply the concept yeah, of consent to that. Exactly. It's so healthy and just respectful mm-hmm. right. to be cognizant of the way you're talking of people's boundaries, of, people's boundaries, <laughs> of the language of, you're using, of the space you take up. I think it's really, really important to keep those things in mind and just mm-hmm. when you're doing them. Point it out to yourself. Okay, yeah, that that was a good, healthy way of respecting consent or asking for consent right. or respecting boundaries. Exactly. Like, it doesn't always have to be a negative thing. Yeah. Like, focus on these things only when consent is not accounted right. for or when boundaries are broken. Like, yeah. Telling somebody that you appreciate that they listened to your boundaries yesterday. Yeah. Like, that's a really good way to reinforce your boundaries. For sure. In a positive way. Absolutely. And I encourage you all to do exactly that. Well, that's all we have for you. We hope that you cleaned your own bit of hope from our discussion today. Take care.